Welcome to the Order Up Show, the operations management podcast presented by Ops Analytica. One of the coolest parts about working here at Ops Analytica is that so many of our new clients are switching to us from our competitors. And it's because we're the most technically advanced platform on the market today. And I ask them, like, what made you change? Why did you come here? And it's always basically the same story. We didn't know what we didn't know when we picked our first platform. We thought we're just going to do a couple of basic checklists, and that's all we're really going to do. And we didn't realize how addictive it would become to have real visibility, real data, real accountability, uh, just an easier way to manage our entire. Hey there, Order Up Show. We are back with another interview. It's Tommy, by the way, your host, and welcome Joseph Zala to the show. Hey, Joseph. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome, sir. So, Joseph, the show, uh, we do the same five questions to every guest, and I like the first question the most, so I'm not going to screw around. Let's just get to it. Explain what you do today, but then take us through your career progression from your first job until now. Excellent. Yeah. So today I serve as managing director for Pavone Advertising's Atlanta offices and the brand Vigor, um, which is a brand that focuses on restaurant advertising, branding, consulting, and, and the list goes on, of course. Um, and so that's my day to day these days. I started as a busboy um, at a small family restaurant in central Pennsylvania. Uh, wiping down tables, cleaning them, and you know, running around like a madman. Uh, for those that you have bus tables, you know how grueling that can be. Um, for those that don't think they can control time, I guarantee you busing tables will show you that you can slow time down. Um, <laughs> from there, uh, I took a job after that at a bagel shop where I worked my way up from uh, cleaning the floors and washing things down at the end of the night, the whole way up to manager over the course of a few years. Uh, where I managed my own store for a while and then also started coordinating deliveries with the uh, delivery trucks and all of that. And it was a fantastic experience because not only did I get to see and experience what it's like to do probably what would be considered the lowest job on the totem pole, um, but I got to experience everything along the way. So from cleaning up at night, I got the morning shift where I was on the front counter selling and you know, outputting food accurately and trying to you know, create a good customer service experience. And then from there, I moved to the back of house where I literally was making the bagels themselves, um, which was not nearly as fun because you had to be up really early to do that. Um, but then you would get out pretty early as well. Um, and then into management. And I, I'm sorry, I also delivered the, the bagels as well. So I got to drive the truck. Nice. Um, you know, and just so I got to really touch every part of the business. And I think that's where my love for the industry, the restaurant industry really solidified. Um, however, I, I think I, I realized then that while I love the industry, I don't want to work directly in the industry. Sure. Um, and so there's a, a large gap there of this job and that job um, from delivering mattresses to uh, working help desk. And, then, and on that job, I realized there is something worse than busing tables, and that is help desk. Um, and then from there, uh, along the way, I started learning design and advertising and things like that, uh, mainly as a labor of love, but also a burden of necessity because I played music and somebody had to make the posters for the shows and the album artwork and all that other stuff. 
Um, and that's when I found what I really love to do, which is uh, creative design, advertising, and all that stuff. Um, I started Vigor, the agency, in 2003. And in about five years, I zeroed it all in on restaurants instead of being a general practitioner. Um, and then from there, I built it to a, a level where someone else liked it. And we came to a lovely agreement this past September, and um, that entity purchased us. And now I'm here running it. Um, along the way, a lot of other things happened. Like we launched a blog called Grits and Grids, which is uh, holds the number one uh, spot usually for restaurant branding inspiration. Um, we try to curate restaurant branding projects and advertising from around the world and critique them and open up a good dialogue. Um, created my own podcast called Fork Tales, which you were a guest on. It was one of my favorite episodes, actually, believe it or not. Um, good discussion on that. And then uh, this past year, I, I finished writing uh, what I would consider to be the pinnacle of my writing goals, which was a book called The Bullhearted Brand which covers all things restaurant branding and marketing uh, from the ground up. And I got to raise, uh, actually rose $12,000 to self-publish it. And that brings me to did today. You, did you do one of those like uh, campaign thingies, like where you, where people can't like crowdsource the money? That's right, yeah, so a uh, Kickstarter. So uh, launched a, a pretty awesome Kickstarter campaign. It was exhilarating and uh, I did something that I've really never done in my life, and that is nagged the heck out of people to support it. And uh, I was more aggressive with that than I ever have been with anything else, but it was a good learning experience. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think Amazon and like, I think the publishing of books, you don't, it's not like you, it's not like it used to be. Like if you can get the word out through your podcast or your blog, through even Facebook advertising, you know, LinkedIn advertising. I, I really love the idea. And it's not, a, I don't think it's cost effective per unit is the print on demand world. Mm -hmm. You know, here it is on, I recorded it on audible and then here's buy it print on demand and the margins aren't there, obviously, you know, mm -hmm. but if you don't get into a million bookstores, obviously if you're going to do a million bookstores, you would just go. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's an interesting industry altogether. And that's where I think the music industry itself really helped shine a light on many things for me in business um, yeah. from the hustle of trying just to get someone to come to a show or buy back then it was a tape and then a compact disc, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, from that, the whole way to the actual industry. And what I learned there was the, the music industry. And the reason why it's in such uh, tumult right now is it was basically a sharecropping industry, a lot of Ponzi scheme going on um, in certain ways, but predatory lending in other ways. And, and I don't mind taking jabs at it because I really don't intend to be back in it. Um, and for those that are wondering, the, the publishing industry as a whole tends to kind of be the same thing where everyone talks about these uh, signing bonuses that they would get uh, in the music industry. And of course, the advances that you get in publishing but what they don't realize is that those advances aren't yours free of charge. Like it's actually a loan in a lot of ways. And um, you, you have to pay it back through book sales. So if your book bombs, you're in a pretty bad spot. Um, now, not every contract's like that. And that's why they have literary agents. But learning that, I realized pretty quick, although I entertained and, and interviewed with a few um, publishing houses, I was like, you know what? I want to see how my network is temperature-wise and see if I can do this on my own. And um, turns out that the water was nice and warm. Nice. 
and I did go the self-publishing print on demand, um, but I also got an initial run of 200 copies. One, to facilitate the fulfillment of the Kickstarter program. Sure. But two, to possibly sell direct and actually make that margin because the margins are really low. Yeah, of course. They, uh, I did stand-up comedy for like 12 years. Mm -hmm. so we would always try to hawk like a CD or something after the shows. Like yeah. Right afterwards, hey, well, buy my CD so I don't have to stay in this gross condo. Or I can That's right. <laughs> but I will tell you, comedy condos are the grossest. But let me tell you what's worse than a comedy condo, a van condo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> at least the comedy condo, uh, there's only three dudes in the comedy condo. And they're usually dorks. So there's not like a lot of chicks running over there afterwards. And <laughs> condos can be four or five guys in a band. And then you got all the groupies. Oh, the worst. So gross. <laughs> I love it. I had a designer friend use uh, a descriptor of what that probably smells like. And I think he said it smells like old soda and farts. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, like, there were two in particular that were the worst, but I used to travel all the time and I never played like big venues. I was always playing like one nighters, like in the, the Western US, which is one nighter for people who don't know is like you drive into a town. It's usually thousands of miles from civilization. And then you go to a gross hotel and then you perform in a bar for people who don't care. And then you get paid like a hundred or 200 bucks, depending if you're lucky. And then you drive to another town and do the same thing the next night. And like when I was doing that a lot, I would always have like my own top sheet that I would put over the hotel bed. I'd, bring mm -hmm. my bed. I'd sleep in my own sleeping bag. I would sometimes sleep in my car if it was super gross, but not freezing out. Like it was just, uh, it, it, it was, you know. That's no. awesome that you're able to plan ahead like that though. <laughs> it's good yeah. advice for those that are going on the road. Uh, it was nuts. And then the comedy condos, I could tell you some stories. <laughs> yeah, just two in particular are the worst, but like, just so gross. You're just like, I'm not even a human being in this thing. Uh, yeah, the kind where you don't want to take off your shoes. Oh, yeah. Like, well, one of them, like, the shower wouldn't drain. There's like three dudes in there. So if you were like the last guy to shower, like, yeah, good luck <laughs> standing on like other people's feet. <laughs> anyway, we could, I, we could literally just tell these band, I'm sure, band slash comedy stories for the rest of the show, but we have that's right. Um, anywho, so okay, cool. So, you know, you have uh, you're running vigor, you have your other business as well, you have your book. Um, so I guess this isn't a normal question that I usually ask, but I'm just kind of curious, like, where do you see yourself in five years? Which I know it's like such a crazy question, I've never asked it before, but I'm curious. Like you got yeah. irons in the fire. Yeah, look, I mean, I think the, the, the goal is to continue to grow this. Um, I share the the passionate purpose that Vigor has, which is um, to, to make restaurant experiences worth remembering. Um, it's, it's our belief as an agency, but also my own personal belief that our most memorable moments in lives as humans are held in and around food and beverage, of course, they go hand in hand. Um, so whether it's sitting down at the table on a date that inevitably turns into a spouse or um, having a good time with your family over a large table of food, all these things really are the things I think that make us humans and make us something special. And um, so it's my goal to continue to, to pursue that and helping making them memorable no matter what it is. 
So I'm currently managing director at Vigor and Pavone, and I love it, and it's great. Um, there's good forward momentum happening, and I get excited about the team and the work every day. So it's very possible that I just continue here, um, you know, but like life has a way of throwing curveballs for those of you that didn't live in uh, 2020 and 2021. Um, sometimes unexpected things happen, but for now, the, the focus is to continue to push that that purpose and then also help this agency and its suite of brands grow and get stronger and do better work for better clients. Let me ask you this. What are your like primary customers? Like who are your, are you doing independent operators? Are you doing chains? Are you doing full service versus fast food? Like, Yeah, it is pretty holistic. I will say that we are a fantastic option when you're starting up. Um, so when it comes to concept development, it's definitely a niche. It's uh, something that we're, I think we're very good at. Um, I think we become, you know, not financially uh, palatable, after that when it comes into the marketing and advertising and, and the reason is it's not because we're expensive it's just because to get that stuff done right it takes multiple people like full time and yeah. so if you do the math you're looking at easily you know quarter of a million dollars in salaries well put that over into an agency and you're going to get a lot but you're not going to get everything and so what we end up doing is just suggesting like here's a playbook here are the basics here's what you need to communicate um, do this and, and come talk to me when you're at 20 units. Um, or if you get an injection of capital and are ready to like really hit the pedal to the metal, I think would become a lot more palatable when you hit the 50 unit mark, the five zero unit mark, um, where we're able to come in with big idea, big advertising idea campaigns and things like that, that are going to get traction, but aren't required, uh, for the smoldering momentum building everyday marketing. Yeah. Um, and, and it's really tough because I do want to help everyone. But when I see the hours roll in, I'm like, okay, well, this is actually what it costs to have our team do this. So um, we try to focus on the uh, medium-sized business uh, and then, uh, of course, enterprise. We would love to do more enterprise work. Um, the, the, the parent agency, we, we house a number of name brands like Starkist Tuna and Sunmade Raisins, um, House Autry, and a number of others. So we have we have the heft and the chops to really handle the large work, um, but right now we don't have any macro level brands uh, in the restaurant space. But we are working on it. So if you're listening, Chipotle, please give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, and it's interesting too because especially for startups, like people don't understand, and if they've never started their own business before, is like, you know, you gotta go just you got to go bare bones and small at the beginning. Like, yeah, it would be great to spend half a million dollars on a marketing campaign for a restaurant. But if the restaurant doesn't take off, like then that, that cash that you pulled out to spend on that advertising, like if you can't hire the right chef or, you know, you have a leak or you, you just run out of cash, like all these businesses go out of business because they run out of cash. Right. Yep. Um, whether it's your fund, your investors say, well, it's great that you spent all that money on advertising, but it didn't do anything or whatever else is your problem. They pull their financing or you just simply run out of cash. Like I hear about these people, they go build out like this. They're it's like an independent like restaurant. They spend a million dollars decorating the damn thing. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Right. Like, like, do you, like, are you just sitting on so much money that you can just spend a million dollars on stuff that doesn't matter? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course they'll argue it does. And in a way I don't disagree, but I also don't disagree with you. 
So I, I think the thing it's is, is people's yeah. understanding of advertising, marketing, the list goes on and its role and its expected return. Yes. And, um, you know, studies have been done. I'm, I'm privy to a number of them. Actually, it's like, you know, you could you could spend one hundred dollars a month on, let's say, search engine marketing. But that doesn't even really get to the, the point of mass appeal where you would see a one to one return, meaning yeah. you're not going to see one hundred dollars back. And yet I swear every client I've ever talked to. I would I would eventually guess like want to spend a dollar and get ten bucks and take ten bucks in return and it's it, it actually just isn't a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even at the highest scales, you're not seeing that kind of return on investment. And so I always say this to clients: it's like, yeah, great. Okay, your budget is let's say five thousand dollars a month in media spend, and then another ten with us. So that's fifteen k. Um, even if you saw one to one, it's it's a wash. Yeah. You know, or at least you know, that we can get into the theory of customer lifetime value and things like that. But um, so there tends to be a lot of disappointment around marketing efforts, which is why you see a lot of switching and a lot of changing of the guard. Um, and, and part of that is it either wasn't sold up correctly, uh, meaning promise the world delivered, not the world, um, or the, uh, the the upper management is just, is just too hard headed to want to understand that, um, that's how marketing works. And there is cu customer lifetime value involved, meaning, yes, we spent, let's say, 50 bucks in total to get Tommy into our front door. Well, now operations need to deliver an amazing experience so Tommy wants to come back. And yeah, we can remind him, but if he had a horrible experience, man, it's gonna, it's gonna take a lot more money to get him to try it again. So I like to think of the ongoing marketing as creating a fire, you know, and you don't just, you don't just snap your fingers and have a bonfire. Yeah. You, uh, you know, you, you got to get the, uh, the kindling lit. You got to get that stoked. You got to get some of those smaller sticks on top so they catch. And then on top of that, then you get to the logs. Um, and that takes time. And if you stop at any moment, you have to start over. And I think that's another issue that we see. And then advertising, in my opinion, is gasoline on the fire. If you throw gasoline on a fire that's barely there, you're just going to smother it. It actually won't catch. But if you throw gasoline onto a decent sized campfire, you're going to have a lot of fun. Um, and, and I think too often people want to spend advertising campaign leveling dollars and not take care of building the fire. And so in getting less ethereal, more direct, part of that fire building is getting people to follow you on social, getting people to sign up for your email list and your loyalty program or app. It's building that basis, that, that kindling, um, and yet nobody wants to spend time and effort really doing that because you don't see the dollar in return right away. And so that's why we do everything we can here. And, and I've been on a mission for this as well is to explain that marketing is not uh, it's, it's not some sort of gambling machine, you know, that you throw in a dollar and outspits millions yeah. um, and that you need to understand that you're investing in foundational and structural things out of the gate that aren't going to see an, Im an immediate dollar per dollar or $10 per dollar spent kind of return, that it is a part of a longer play. It's, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and all the other cliches that you could roll out. Well, and if you think about it too, and I'm just thinking about it from the big chain, I, I, we're going to talk about this for like 10 more minutes at least. But yeah. <laughs> like you think about the big chains, like McDonald's is running advertisements all the time even when they're not doing a limited time offer, right? Mm -hmm. so they're building the fire. They're reminding you that they exist. They're just keeping in front of you. So you go, oh yeah, I like chicken McNuggets. And then when it's, you know, whatever, Cinco de Mayo, 
double the chicken nugget, blah, 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 whatever, then they can throw. Then that's where they're looking at that one for one return on the LTO because then they're, they're actually have a call to action, you know, mm -hmm. billboard advertising. Like you just want to remind people you exist. Right. And then part of it is, okay, now we're doing something that we're really going to track and see that we like got a return on this investment for whatever this new product we developed was or this special or BOGO or coupon or whatever they're doing. Yeah, and usually, I mean, I, lo I love that you use McDonald's because you can learn a lot from the macro brands. Of course, you know, the, the smaller guys that are in the one unit to even a hundred unit space don't have that kind of budget. But right. if you take away the actual number and break it down to percentages, I think there's a problem within the industry of expectations on what should be spent on marketing. And the number on average tends to be 3.5%. That's insane. And it's not just because I'm in the industry, but you're not going to get anything done for 3.5% of, of uh, revenue um, in, placed in marketing. 5%, I would say, is baseline. You're keeping the lights on and anything on top of that would be more. So case in point is um, Wendy's spends all of this money on R&D to put together a breakfast program. <laughs> Do you think that they spent... 3.5% to launch and market it? I can answer you, no, they didn't. They spent, I think when I saw the numbers last, it was about 20% of revenue uh, system-wide. They invested on launching and advertising the breakfast offering. That is a lot of money. And if you just do the math, if you're, if you're a restaurant owner right now, you can do the math, but it is exactly that I word. It's an investment. So you have to invest in this to work. And uh, if you're investing 3.5% or even 5%, how can you expect to actually, quote unquote, move your needle? You know, 5% movement, people are happy that it's movement forward, but they're not elated. Um, and you're not going to move, you know, a multi-million dollar single location or even like, you know, um, five location restaurant, for instance. You're not going to move that by spending $20,000 on marketing a year. Um, you, you really have to get in there. I know that's not the correct math, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> $200,000 a year per million, let's say like you're, you're not going to get a million dollars out of that. You know, it, you're lucky if you're going to get $200,000 back. Um, and so I, I think it's a, it's a misunderstanding that's pretty prevalent in that marketing is supposed to somehow be this cash machine that just delivers the world. And I'm not devaluing marketing. I'm just saying the expectations are off because the fact is when you just start out, for instance, being completely raw, nobody cares. Your mom cares, you care, your spouse maybe. Yeah. Your kids probably don't care because they're kids and they don't care. Um, but in general, your first step is to get somebody to actually know you exist, like actually know that you're there. That takes money and that does not involve a transaction. The next step after awareness is getting someone to be interested in what you're doing, meaning I know they're there, I just don't care, to I know they're there and I'm kind of interested by them. And that takes money, but still no transaction. And then the third level is, okay, I know they're there, I am aware, I am interested, and you know what? I'm going to make a purchase. And that's halfway through the life cycle. After that becomes trying to get them to come back trying to get them to have these great experiences over and over again, build that loyalty. And then eventually you get some people that make it to advocates of the brand. They're the ones that'll wear your t-shirt. Um, they're the ones that are gonna tell all their friends all the time. And they're the ones that would say things like, yeah, I'm Tommy and I'm a McDonald's kind of guy. I don't wanna go to Wendy's. 
you know, not that that's the case, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And so when you think about this, that journey is a long one and it's an expensive one. But if the lifetime value of an advocate or a Tommy uh, is, you know, a hundred dollars a month or more, well, that starts to become actually worth it in the long run. Um, and, you know, what, what I say is getting people to just want to hear from you is a pretty big battle one. So don't discount the uh, followership on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, and whatever comes next. That's important because you have people who at least have some ears that are like, I wouldn't mind seeing more from brand X. And if you get them to sign up for email list, it's the same thing. Like, yeah, it doesn't result in a transaction, but that's a hell of a great benchmark. That's that's one big hurdle overcome. You have someone saying they want to hear from you. And yet, because it doesn't beget immediate dollars, a lot of leaders don't put value in it. And that's a shame. Well, and you know, everybody wants to point to the unicorns, right? Like just across the world. And, and on all things like Google. Well, why don't you just be Google? Yeah. Go on, do this. Well, you know, they, you know, the people who don't need advertising and marketing, it's because they invented something spectacular that was so captivating, right? Like that, mm -hmm. that like it just it didn't need it because the word of mouth was so powerful. But like that's a unicorn. That's not a that's that that's not what you know a breakfast sandwich isn't going to do that. You know right. what I mean? Like, and so with the for the CEOs that are like, well, we're not seeing the return on this marketing. Well, like, well, you haven't developed a product or delivered an offering that's worthy that that could do it without this. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? Like, like you're yelling at me, and I'm saying that's great, but you're you know you chose to operate in an industry and you chose to deliver a product or service that's not blowing it out of the water, buddy. So yep. yeah. Well, and a lot of people would like to think that their hamburger is the Google of that industry and they're yeah. wrong. And I hate to say that. It's like, look, everybody thinks their food is the best. You know, that's, that's the bottom line. You think your kids are gorgeous and wonderful and the smartest things in the world. And, and we, we, we have, a, we have that bias built into us as humans, but let's take Google cause you brought it up. Yeah. You know, I, we like to have this little exercise called in, in, in a world. Um, and it's where we almost write a, a movie trailer for the brand that helps position that brand in the world. So for Google, for instance, that statement would go something like in a world where search engines are mucked up and mired by thousands of links to other services underneath that umbrella, we have put the most important thing front and center, the search bar. And that was the real difference that Google brought to the market. Yahoo, MSN, um, Ask Jeeves, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, but they all were before Google. But if you went on their homepage, yes, there was a search bar and then there was a ton of other links to other things, news headlines, uh, this service, that service, list goes on. And Google shredded all of it and just put a search bar. And so they really did revolutionize what's expected from a search company. Now, of course, they built from there and they have all these other things, but at its core, they focused on a true need. And then they had the guts to do something that you shouldn't have done. Apple's the same way. You know, Apple never put out a product that had all these whiz bang stickers all over the front and then a god awful list of features and additional software preloaded on just to try to get you to buy it. And again, they went away that everyone else would say was a bad idea. And I think this industry needs more of those, those heroes, those guts, um, because 
you, you're making a hamburger and you like the hamburger that you make. So what, dude? I have my favorite hamburger. Yeah. So you're not going to sell me that yours is better unless you intend to tell me I'm wrong. In which case, I ask you to have a little, uh, do a little experiment. Go tell your significant other they're wrong. See how good that goes. And now you're trying to do that for all the people out there telling you, we know you have a favorite, but ours is better. Get out of here. No one's going to buy that. Well, yeah, it's interesting because like, we had it. We had in our company alone, uh, Ops Analytica. We launched with a brand message, right? Uh, which was, "You need operations data. You need it. Like mm -hmm. habits going to make everything better, life easier. It's it's sliced bread. It's butter. It's the best thing ever." And we launched it, and you know, got zero traction at the beginning, um, and then you know, spent, and then you know, I have did the marketing and MBA school and read all these brand books and watch all these internet marketing videos and everything. And I was like, okay, you know, anyone I'll tell you like from a brand perspective, you just kind of narrow down your brand to be this thing, right? Like mm -hmm. is to communicate simplified message, you know, this is your brand. This is what you do. And so then for the next four years, we went around going, uh, we're better. Like we had all these different slogans. We're better than paper. You have food safety issues. Your manager, I'm doing what they're supposed to be doing blah, 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 blah. And that all ended up like, it kind of all kicked us in the butt a lot because of the fact that um, automatically, if you didn't feel like your managers were bad or you had food safety issues or whatever, then you didn't even want to talk to us because we were trying to solve a problem that you didn't have, mm -hmm. right? So that was a whole pain in the butt thing that took us years to figure out. And then uh, when we, and we just kept iterating through all these things and then ironically one of our customers told us what our value prop was and it was like two degrees off our original value prop which was in it four years later though um and they were like you help us identify the problems we didn't even know we had mm -hmm. it was basically operations data you're the data you're you're helping us collect on our operations is allowing us to see things that we didn't even know were an issue for us and so it was exactly, it was the exact message that we launched with, but just two degrees change, just like a little tweak, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like over there. And, and when we adopted that messaging, it just started to resonate and, and just that the data is what drives all of this and that you just need this data so you can, you know, whatever. And it was such an interesting journey to go full circle over four years, you know? I mean, four years is a long time when you're a startup and you're not- um, Yeah, it's eternity, yeah. Ramming, you know, sales in and out of this place. It was crazy. No, I love that though. And that, that's what fresh eyes can bring to the table. So there's, you know, there's a lot of leaders out there that think they get it, that they know their brand and this, that, and the other. But the fact, is, I mean, this is an arguable fact. When you're in it, you cannot see the forest for the trees. You really can't. Uh, the only way I think you could truly get there, and this is only with some people, is to literally leave, like get out, go on vacation for two weeks, don't even think about the brand, and then towards the end of that vacation, that two-week vacation, try to analyze things without the rose-colored lenses on, without the muck and mire right in front of your face, and be honest with yourself, because you were close, like you said, you were close at the beginning because it was still fresh. And then you try to tweak and it wasn't getting traction and it took someone else, an outside fresh eyes party to just land you back. Like you said, just two degrees off. You were so close. And uh, but you know, that's what agencies do, or at least that's what they're supposed to do. 
is they're supposed to be the unbiased friend that comes in and sees the things that you can't see. But you have to be receptive to that as a leader. You have to be ready to um, listen here and not, not, not challenge, definitely challenge, but also try to see what this outside party has seen and then try to find out or figure out together collaboratively how that lands. And we've, we've been in all sorts of situations where we had completely free reign and we did a great job. We had a highly collaborative situation and we did a great job. And we've had situations where the leadership was so convinced of their own expertise and knowledge and, and uh, innovation that they created new problems uh, to compound the old ones, didn't listen to anything that we said or other consultants for that matter. And you know what? Those folks were gone within like, I would say 12 months, they were closing their doors. And sure. look, I'm, I'm not saying it was because they did not listen to the great and powerful vigor. What I'm saying is that attitude was indicative, not just in our relationship, it was present in all the other relationships with experts at their table. They made bad decisions, they overspent constantly, and they blew through a lot of money and they closed their doors as a result. And they probably have fingers to point everywhere else, except for the one that should be pointing back at themselves. Well, and you know, when somebody doesn't listen to experts, right? Then that's that's not like they're only not like it's not like they were receptive to other experts that were telling them other things in different parts of their business. When you know better than everybody that you have experts for, then you know you're already doomed to fail, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it they went out of business because they weren't they just weren't good listeners, and they thought they knew more than they did, and. That that's right every aspect of their business ubers ubers is the word <laughs> yeah absolutely um so what was i gonna tell you oh so the other thing i so okay oh, i had something and then i lost it all of a sudden that pisses me off i <laughs> it'll come back in the most unopportune time yeah absolutely it'll be like when you're in the middle of this great story then i'll interrupt it and kill your time <laughs> that's my promise to you they <laughs> i love it <laughs> but uh no yeah because we've oh that's what it was we've hired lots of advertising um companies or marketing companies to help us here and there over time you know and and we try different things but one thing that everyone always said was you need like like especially if you're doing like a google ad campaign or something be like well you need four to six months to get this thing started right yeah and at the beginning when you're kind of broke like four to six months holy hell it 5,000, 10,000 a month. That's a lot of money, you know, but mm -hmm. like it took us till recently to like, you know, but like things need time to work. You know what I mean? And like, that's another thing I think people just forget about with marketing. Like, yeah. So what you started running your ad today, who cares? Like it's gotta be seen 50 times. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, it, so you do really need, I mean, and I, I think four to six months is probably in hindsight short you need a year commit to this for a year and and once again but it's kind of what you said earlier do you understand what marketing actually does you know like like you said marketing is the little fire that just gets awareness right like we're just trying to build awareness here that's all we're trying to do is cut through the clutter and get on people's radar that's a slow game you know what i mean it's not yep. It's not like a magic bullet where you're just going to shoot it. And next thing you know, like you said, sales are just going to start pouring in. Yeah. And yet people people do see it that way still. And you, you can see that in the mentality of even titling within an organization, sales and marketing. 
Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. Those are two different things. A sell is something you're trying to do when you're at a party and you see someone of the uh, someone that you're attracted to. Yeah. That you want to take home. That's sales, man. You got it. You got to try to land that plane. Marketing <laughs> is trying to go to many parties and develop rapport and have them come to you. And I, you know, that's a it's just a different ball game altogether. And it takes time. And you said 50 times, and if you might not be wrong, uh, I saw studies, it's about seven times that someone has to encounter your brand. Yeah. And that doesn't mean on the same channel. So that's why multi-channel marketing is really important, but you have to have the budget to, to do it. You have to get the traction. And no matter how far down the road we go in, in time, some of the age old advertising mechanics are still very much true. And those are reach and frequency. I want to reach the mass amount of people possible that are primed to really love this brand and want to eat our food. Um, and I need to do it as many times as I possibly can. That's, that's the end of the goal. I mean, that's the, that's the whole name of the game. And the end goal, of course, is we want to see sales start to come in, but it just doesn't happen right away. It, it takes, you have to reach in frequency day in and day out interaction. And, you know, there are experts out there that wouldn't have you believe that you have a purpose defined and therefore your purpose will sell. And it's like, no, that's just one component, man. That's just the house. But people don't know about your house. You know, you, you got to you got to bring them over. And that takes time. And, you know, that's that's the one thing is it really is time and money. Um, and that's not to say that everything has to be expensive. But I think at the beginning of this uh, this diatribe, you, you said it and I think I reinforced it, which is. You got to get clever when you don't have the cash, and but you also have to be realistic. Um, like you should not be launching a million dollar campaign to open an unproven concept. Instead, you have to have, I think, unique ways that are worth talking about to get people to come back and tell their friends. So for instance, um, friends of mine, they have a brand called Zunzi's and Zunzabar. You may have heard them talk at some industry events. They, they get around, they're great, but you know, you go in there, it's if you're if it's your first time, they get once they give you your food, they give you a little wood coin that basically says, come back with a friend and get half off. You come back with a friend and get half off, they give you both coins for a free something or other as well to come back again. And they have basically have three rounds of this to get you to come back and try. I think one of them is try something different and you get it like at a percentage off. And so it's it's heavy discounts, but they actually um it actually works, it gets traction. And I, I know of another group that if it was your first time coming in, once they gave you your food, you could rock, paper, scissors, the, uh, the person who handed it off to you. And if you won, you get like a free uh, burrito on the next uh, visit and they would hand you a coin. It's fun things like that that stick with people. Um, mindless couponing is silly. You know, I, I, it's a waste. Um, if you give someone a coupon that's never tried your food, you're basically telling them your food is worthless. You know, it's so worthless that you are giving it away for free, just desperately trying to get you to eat it. Bad messaging, you know, and there is a place for discounts. Like I said, it's just uh, I think you need to be smart about it. I remember, I think it was in business school talking about how like using your CRM, like that you should be like right now, like you'll see it with cell phones all the time. Like, hey, switch from T-Mobile to Verizon and we'll give you eight months free and a new phone, right? But if mm -hmm. you're already a Verizon customer, man, you don't get shit. Yeah. <laughs> you just keep paying us, dude. And uh, where that's the exact backwards way of doing it. Like that's why our CRMs 
are, are such an, a powerful part of like your and your tool set of a company because you can identify your best customers and you should be giving discounts to your best customers to get them in even more frequently right right versus that um yeah it's really interesting i worked at chang's pf chang's for a while mm -hmm. and you know the lettuce wrap the chicken lettuce wrap i don't know if i ever explained it on the show before but the chicken lettuce wrap is probably quite possibly the greatest menu item ever developed in a restaurant chain ever because the food cost on it is 36 cents or it was at the time it maybe have gone up this would have been in the early i guarantee it's gone up but probably it's probably still it's, it's not expensive four cents now it's yeah. not it's that i mean literally it's mushrooms water chestnuts and uh green onions and chicken trimmings so it's not like it's uh but it's chopped up so finely right and then some sauce mm -hmm. right it's not expensive so even if it was 50 cents today, they're probably selling it for eight or nine bucks. So it doesn't matter. The, the food cost on it was ridiculously low. And it was one of those things where they told us on day one, you ask people when you go, hey, is your first time in and tell them you got to get the lettuce wraps. And if they're not sold on it, go, if you guys are cool with it, I will buy you lettuce wraps because they were so delicious and so cheap that the PF Chang's knew that if we give these people those wraps, A, we will be like no other restaurant they've ever been to where someone just bought them an appetizer, but B, they will come in and order that every time they come back. And the profit margin was so high on it. Like, like it was directly tied to the profitability of the store. How many lettuce wraps you're removing out of there. Um, and it's similar to what your, your buddies were doing with that coin. Yeah. You know? I love that. Like having someone that, like, I believe in this so much. I'll buy it for you. Yeah, That's this great. is so amazing. You've got to eat it. And if you eat and you will thank me, but then they knew the guy would come back because now they just gave him a story. They just gave him a story to tell their friends at a cocktail party how, how good this was and how the place bought it for him. And then, yeah, and you go, you know what? They don't even care. Go in and tell people you've never been here before. They'll give you some lettuce wraps. Just do it. Who cares? Right. It doesn't matter. You're going to go spend all this other money on drinks and food and everything else. It's not like, like if you came in and ordered water and lettuce wraps and then and then you left yeah you won right but like how long does that happen right like, well exactly yeah it's gonna be like you know you're gonna always have that and that's the other worry with couponing and discounts and stuff like that is you get couponers you can't build your business on couponers no and so the goal of coupons is to try to nudge someone over that line of aware and interested into okay i'm going to purchase yeah uh, the problem is is you get people who have no brand loyalty or preference at all their only loyalty is to how cheap they can get something and you're going to get a mass of those people too unless there are other ways to qualify or if you get a you know, cost of entry so for instance we were really um in tight with a system that does wi-fi gating plus so much more but the goal of it is i'm like look we're going to put this in place it's a low monthly fee and the byproduct of letting people use your wi-fi is we get their information and that alone is, worth is huge absolutely now we're going to tie something into it hey you signed in thanks for you know now you have wi-fi hey look if you just answer this one question we're going to give you a free appetizer and we can dictate what that question is and that question could be what's your favorite item on the menu or since you've never been here what do you intend to try today and once we get that we can actually label that person and market that product to them later too like you say data um, you know, with Ops Analytica, which is great, but it's also what you do with the data that is even stronger. 
Well, and um, that's the key. Well, you just said the most important thing probably for like the listeners or people who are interested in Ops Analytica, but for yourself too, like we provide you with more data than you could shake a stick at. It will not change behavior if you don't utilize it. Yep. To take some sort of human action. Like people expect the platform, our platform or platforms in general to like, well, I'm spending all this money to have this software, but I'm still have to do all this work. Yeah. It's just <laughs> making it more efficient and making you better at doing it. It doesn't mean that the work actually goes away unless you can fully automate something out. Right. Yep. But like, you know, from our perspective, it's like we collect so much data and yet we'll have restaurants that aren't getting any better. And they'll be like, well, and then like we literally were having our sales call right before this. And the guy was like, well, he didn't like this. He, he was really mad that a lot of these like car washes haven't even used this uh, competitor software. And we were all sitting there going, well, we can't like they're not going to use our software either. That's bad management. That has nothing to do with that guy's software, right? Like, right. I love it that they they weren't using his software because it was broken all the time. Well, that would be different, right? But it probably isn't broken all the time. They're just bad managers who don't want to do it. And so they're not doing it. And his organization hasn't taken, they, they know they're not using it and they're not making him do it. So, you know. Yeah, it was really a fault. They're not doing it, right? So the, the system's working perfectly. Yeah. We, we get that all the time too. And I, I, I've been known to make the statement like, look, we, we can build you or, or, you know, sell you the Lamborghini, but you're going to have to drive it. And if you pedal to the metal and try to whip around a corner and end up eating a tree, <laughs> that is, that is not the Lamborghini's fault. And it sure as hell ain't my fault. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's something similar to a, a client a little while ago you know, that we were having a discussion about sales, blah, 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 blah. And they launched a product that honestly wasn't good. And I can say that confidently because there was no, like, or little to no repeat orders. And so I said something similar, like, hey, man, we can get someone to come in and try it. it. If they don't want it, that's not our fault. And if they had a bad experience when getting it, that's your fault. You know, and so you, we need to optimize everything at the same time, starting with a little bit of R&D, real R&D, not just a chef in the kitchen saying, yeah. hey, it doesn't this taste good. Um, See if there's even an appetite for it. See even if it's even like hitting on consumer demand for your particular group of patrons, uh, as we call them. Um, and if the answer is no, they don't want that, then I don't care how delicious you think it is. They're not going to buy it. And, you know, when you put a bunch of money behind something that flops, that sucks because of course you want to blame uh, the marketing department or their agency or both. Um, but at the bottom line is you didn't do enough work. You didn't get enough data to, to justify bringing that thing to market. Um, and so same thing, you know, if I were to pitch or show that case study to another a potential client, their response is going to be, well, what were the results? And I'd be like, well, we sold a lot of those things one time. Yeah. And they're like, why not more? I'm like, because it sucked. Nobody wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> like marketing is can be good, but it's not a magician, man, you know? But well, it's so funny you say that too, because like I write all the content for our company and I'm more the creative guy over here and, um, and my, and I, you know, and like, I'm so like, I, I know the value of our platform. I know the value prop of our stuff, but like my business partner, I'll be like, but they, they just should be using this. And he's like, dude, if they don't have a pain that we're solving, they're not going to buy it. Like he always has to bring me back to earth, right? Like stop. Like, yes, we all agree that this is good stuff, but if it doesn't solve an immediate pain for them, they're not going to purchase. And it doesn't matter what we say. So right. stop wasting your time saying it because we got to go find the pain that we're solving for this guy. 
You know what I mean? And yep. that's one thing where our product is, I think, harder to market because it's like Excel, right? It's Excel can be the spreadsheet that you run all your finances off of. And it's incredibly complex and it's got thousands of formulas and you're moving stuff around and forecasting. And it can also be, you know, your wife's grocery list thing. right? <laughs> yeah. Or the birthday party list for your party. And it, and it, it, it sells so amazing because it can do all of those things well, but it's also hard to sell because it doesn't solve a specific problem. You know what right. I mean? You have to use case it to different groups of people and try to, well, you should be using Excel versus paper for this or whatever. But like it, that also, like, that's a thing that we always have struggled with, which I just thought is interesting. Is yeah. To, you know, it's a tool. If you don't know how to, if you don't know how to use a hammer, you're never going to build the house, man. You know? Yep, exactly. Um, and yet not being able to build a house does not make the hammer bad. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, and you're, and yeah, and it's hard too when you're in the agent and you're like trying to keep the client happy to tell them, hey, your product sucked from day one, and nobody wanted to tell you. Yep, yep, yeah, and it's uh, it's funny because even when we're doing concept development, there, there's there's some research done. Um, we have some partners that we're in really close with that pull so much data. One of them has the most data, restaurant concept data in the nation. And it's a bold claim that I've double checked and double checked over and over again. And it still is. They have the most data and they're parsing it using machine learning, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we can come back with all that data and you could still sell you, say you want to open a barbecue restaurant, even though that we proved that barbecue would flop. And yeah. then when it inevitably does, whose fault is that? You know, and I think that's the case of, uh, I think the first example that I gave, you know, that this person landed prime re uh, real estate spots of places that weren't even built yet. And I was like, my guy, you don't even have a concept open. Like you should not be pouring concrete until you've actually proven that the concept has enough legs. And instead they're like going into the, you know, signing a lease like two years before this building's built. And then oh. they, you know what I mean? It's insane. And I'm like, and of course they opened a few locations. They spent tons of money on the, on the interiors and the architecture and, um, there were a lot of ands, as I call them. And to me is almost as ugly as the word just. So and to me, if you every time you say and, you should just add a zero to the number on the back end. You know, <laughs> so you just add one more thing, you're gonna need that much more money. And same thing with just, just as a side note. Like I hate when people say, just just do this. It's never just. It actually takes a lot of time, man. Like you can't just do something like. Uh, so saying just devalues what you're actually asking for, even though there's a lot of value in it, I'm sure. And same thing with, and you add something, you've got to double your budget every time you're adding, you're doing it, or you either double your budget or you cut your expectations in half. This interview with Joseph Sala went two hours long. So I'm going to break it into two episodes. So this is the end of part one and you can pick up and finish the interview in part two. Thanks.